You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, community radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind on WTDR. Wow. Just listen. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Correct, 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 correct. Good luck. Tony Epstein, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Today, we're going to hear an interview I did with Marilyn Stefano, who tells her story of how she went from a very poor, broken family in New York to meeting her husband and moving to Beverly Hills, where he became part of the Hollywood movie-making world back in the 1950s and wrote the screenplay for one of the most famous movies of all time. And, just between you and me, 
Marilyn is my aunt, my father's older sister. And oddly enough, we've only met a few times, but with whom I felt a wonderful connection from the first time we met when I was about 20 years old, while we were both briefly in New York at the same time. You grew up in a poor family in New York, right? Right. And somehow you ended up in Southern California, Beverly Hills. Right. Uh-huh. How did that happen? Uh, I think sheer luck. My mother, your grandmother, was divorced, so she was a single woman, although she had been married, of course. And when I was about five, she left our father and took us to live with her parents in the Lower East Side for a while till she got settled. And then through the years, she worked as a typist and worked generally from home, but also worked out at wherever the place was that had hired her. And so she didn't make that much money. I think at times she was making something like $25 a week that she raised us and paid rent for and food and care and whatever was needed. And I think $25 a week, most people can't live on that in a day. And here were three of us living on that. And my first job when I graduated from high school was making $25 a week as an airbrush artist. They trained me to use the airbrush like a paintbrush. And I thought my mother raised us on what I am making personally myself, which is still not a lot of money. So I was planning on possibly working in the advertising business, and I had friends who came from Queens. I lived in Upper Manhattan, Washington Heights, which is interesting to me. It's the area that Lynn manuel Miranda has publicized. And it was a very different world then. It's much more Latino now, but it was very middle-class Jewish. Henry Kissinger evidently grew up there when he left Germany. And it was an interesting area. It was right by the George Washington Bridge. And one Saturday, friends invited me to join them when they were going to see a movie downtown Broadway. And we went to the movie, and then afterward... They said they wanted to meet some friends at a nightclub. And we walked over to the club, which is in the West 50s. And I don't drink. I didn't drink then, and I don't drink now. So I went over to the jukebox to see what was playing. And looking at the selections, when a man came over to me and pointed to something and said, play that. And I said, why? He said, because I wrote it. (laughs) So I was rather impressed, and I played it, and we started talking. And the song that he wrote was on the back of a big hit by a singer probably nobody's ever heard of since, named Karen Chandler, who had a hit song that was revived years later called Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me. And so this man and I started talking, and he introduced himself as Jerry Stevens. And he was very attractive, dark curly hair, dark brown eyes, and wearing Levi's, which was not common those days, and motorcycle boots and a motorcycle jacket. So he kind of looked like a bad boy. (laughs) And 
very charming. We spent the evening talking. And then my friend said, we're going over to an all-night cafeteria a few blocks away. It happened to be around the corner from where I had gone to high school, School of Industrial Art, which is a vocational art school. I was studying fashion illustration. And he followed us and got my number and said he would call me. And, of course, I waited two weeks without going out, waiting for his call, and it didn't come, and I finally went out to a movie, and I came back, and I found that he had called. So I called him back, and we made a date for that week, and just started seeing each other. So he was this very attractive man who turned out to be a songwriter, which is a world that I had no knowledge of, although I loved listening to great radio DJs. New York had a couple of really wonderful DJs. One was named Fred Robbins. He had a show called Robbins Nest. And William B. Williams. And then later on, Mitchell B. Reed, who came out to L.A. And as I found out later on, was married to a new friend of mine. So kind of a small world. And eventually, Joe asked me to marry him. I agreed, and we got married that year. We met the end of January and got married December 5th of that year. And he continued writing songs, doing acts for people, and eventually started writing show tunes for Las Vegas shows and being very successful and doing industrial shows where they introduced the new car. He worked for Cadillac several years, and every spring, when it was time to introduce the new car to the dealers, the dealers would come to Detroit, and they would present the new car like it was a movie star, polished and lit and shining and glorious on a turntable slowly, and then they would write a show about it, introducing the dealers to all the new effects that you can find in this new version of the car that they sell every year. They had Broadway stars who did the performing, and it was a fascinating part of the business. And it launched Joe into that kind of thing. And that's what his career seemed to be about. And then we've been married about three years without a TV set, and we finally got one and started watching it. And we watched a dramatic show one night, and Joe said, I could do that, literally. And he sat down and he wrote a script. And we had a friend who worked for an agent in New York, and his name actually was Dan Hollywood. And he had a cousin working in Hollywood in Culver City for MGM who was the gatekeeper. His name was Ken Hollywood. So our friend presented Joe's script, which she thought was great, to her agent boss, and he called him on a Saturday night and said, don't talk to anyone, talk to me. Come in Monday morning, I'm going to get you a deal. And sure enough, he sold the script to uh, Italian producers, Carlo Ponti, who was at the time living with Sophia Loren and later on was able to marry her, and another Italian producer named Marcello Girosi. And Joe got hired to write an English version of a movie that they were about to start shooting in Rome with Gina Lollobrigida. So 
there's where I'm talking about luck. This is just an incredible combination of circumstances where one thing, luckily, sometimes can lead to another and another. So Joe really had an easy entree. We had a friend who knew somebody else and on and on like that. So that's what brought us out here. After Joe did the movie for the producers, they then came out here to film his script, which was called The Black Orchid. Actually, it was called The Flower Maker originally. It was kind of based on partly on Joe's mother, who used to make silk flowers at the factory in Philadelphia. And so Joe turned that role into a role for Sophia Loren, who's got a husband who's in prison and a kid, no, kid's in prison. His husband was killed. He's a gangster. And the son is following in his footsteps, and she's very worried about that. She doesn't want him to be killed, too. And she brings flowers home from work and makes them at home at night. And she's sitting on her back porch one night when her next-door neighbor, played by Anthony Quinn, sees her and finds her very appealing and very attractive and starts flirting with her, and she won't have anything to do with him. She's finished with men. She doesn't want to have any more problems with men. And he slowly wins her over. And it's a charming movie, and, and there's some lovely scenes in it. And that was the entrance for Joe into the movie business. His agent got him a seven-year picture deal with 20th Century Fox, and it was one of the last deals ever made. The studios were closing down that kind of program, but it brought us out to Hollywood from New York, and it was the beginning of where I am now. So it's kind of a fascinating story. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you said that it was one of the last of those deals because what was uh, the changing? The system was changing, and it was becoming more of a business Business people, business companies were taking over from the people who had really been filmmakers when they ran the studio, the Warner Brothers and Louis B. Mayer, and those people were all much more people involved with filmmaking, and they were artists and not even question, but they considered that their business, not any business business. And it began changing. Big companies began moving in and changing the nature of the business. Joe was assigned to work with a very well-known producer at that time. Even before we moved, I was getting ready to pack up our apartment and move us to Los Angeles. And Joe flew to Hollywood and then flew with this producer, Sam Engel, to Rio de Janeiro, where he had spent time during World War II and had been treated very nicely by the government officials in Rio. And he decided he wanted to do a movie in Rio that would do for Rio what Three Coins in the Fountain did for Rome. So they flew there to meet people who Sam remembered working with so wonderfully. And nobody was in town. That was in January, and it's the summer season for Rio. And they stayed at this beautiful Copacabana hotel overlooking Copacabana Beach with the mosaic tile along the beach, and the air conditioning wasn't working. 
and none of the people he wanted to talk to were in town. So he began getting a little upset and nervous, and they decided to go to the spot resort area where those people were supposed to be and went there and couldn't find them there either. And Sam got so upset that he got a case of the hives and was confined to his room for almost a week while Joe was just kind of on his own. And the studio sent a driver and car for him and took him around, showing him different places. And luckily for me, one of the places they took him to was a jewelry store where he found a couple of beautiful pieces of jewelry for me. So I got lucky. <laughs> and then finally Sam recovered and said, well, obviously this is not going to work. Let's go to Lima, Peru. <laughs> and they boarded a plane to go over the Andes overnight, slept in bunk beds in the plane. And as they were driving in from the airport at Lima, Sam looked around and said, I don't think this is going to work. Let's go home. And they went home. And two days later, Sam called and said, I've just been looking through National Geographic magazine. I think we should film this in the Basque country. <laughs> And at that point, Joe called his agent and said, I want out of this contract. And the agent said, well, that means that they'll just add it on to the end of your seven years, and it'll now be eight years that you'll be committed to the studio. And Joe said, no, no, I want out of the whole contract. I don't have anything to do with this. It seemed like slavery to him. And the agent said, well... That could be a problem. You'll never work at 20th Century Fox again. And Joe said, that's okay. If that's what it takes, get me out of it. And he was able to get him out of it. And a week later, he got a phone call from Jerry Wald, who was a big producer at 20th Century Fox, inviting him to come in and talk to him about another project. So, so much for you. will never work at the studio again. So it sounds like things were different. Joe to finally go with a new agent and tell him that he had a list of 10 directors who he would like to work with because he didn't know the business well enough. He'd only written two scripts at that point, and he wanted to work with someone who could teach him. And on the list was Otto Preminger, William Wyler, and quite a few other people, and Alfred Hitchcock. And Joe's two agents were thrilled to have him and they felt that he should be Hitchcock. And Hitch saw Joe's movie, The Black Orchid, and it wasn't his cup of tea. You know, it just was too kitchen sink for him. So pressure was put on Hitch to at least meet with him. And he finally agreed, and the book Psycho was sent to Joe, who read it and was kind of horrified by the character who's a 40-year-old reprobate lives with his mother alone, has no life except at the motel, plays erotic music and looks at, I don't know if anyone's ever seen the old Montgomery Ward catalogs of drawings of women's brassiers, full-length brassiers or corsets. That was his pornography. And Joe thought he was just so unpleasant that no one could identify with him. And he was trying to figure out how to solve the problem when he finally discovers in the book that the mother's dead. There are only so many scenes where you can have the mother in the bathroom 
and the son outside talking to her before people get suspicious. And he was driving to Paramount Studios for his first meeting with Hitch when he came up with an idea. And when he arrived at Hitch's office, they settled down, they chatted, had a nice little conversation. And then finally, Joe said, let me tell you how I see this picture. And for the first 15 minutes of the picture, Joe described what he saw, starting with the helicopter shot going across Phoenix, Arizona, and going in through a slit in a window into a motel room where a couple is shacking up. And then Joe describes what happened to the girl, at which point Hitch leaned forward with his eyes bright, and he said, we could get a star. And Joe's agent, who was sitting there, said, we knew we had him then. And at the end of the meeting, they excused Joe, and Joe's agent sat with Hitch and came out a couple of minutes later and said, he wants you to start Monday morning at 9 o'clock. And Joe said, oh, I can't do that. I'm in therapy every morning at 9 o'clock, five days a week. And the agent was worried about that and thought maybe that would be a turnoff for Hitch. But when he went back in to tell Hitch, Hitch was fascinated. He didn't know anyone that young, first of all, Joe was 31, or that involved in therapy. He was very curious about that. So he agreed to wait till 1030 when Joe was available. And they began their relationship, which was one of the best working relationships Joe had ever had with anyone. Which absolutely respected him. They had a wonderful time talking about all kinds of things besides the movie. They rarely spent much time talking about the movie. Hitch loved gossiping and he loved talking about parties that he'd been to and wine and good food and trips and things like that. And they really had a great time. And then after about several weeks, Hitch finally said, Alma and I are going to take a little holiday. We're going to San Moritz, and why don't you write the first part of the screenplay for us? And Joe said, okay. He knew this was a test, and they went off to a holiday, and he wrote the beginning scenes of the script. And when they came back, it was given to Hitch, and then they set up a meeting, and Joe came in, and Hitch said, Alma loved it, and Joe breathe a sigh of relief because Hitch was not one to compliment you directly, but that was a compliment that he was very happy to receive. And that was the beginning of the very special period for Joe. Too bad he never had someone who he could work with that easily, someone who was that assured of his talents that he didn't need to put down the writer or ignore the writer as unfortunately happens these days. Writers always the first to start the project and the first to be dropped and rewritten if possible, which Joe would not allow. His theory was whatever you do, protect your credit, which he did. How are you involved? Did Joe tell you about all these things or were you actually in on some of these conversations? No, I do have a good memory and... Joe and I were really best friends, and it was wonderful to be able to share his life with him. And he would come home and want to talk. So 
I was never involved professionally, except finally when he began producing movies later in life, and I became his assistant and driver. But I still, well, no, actually, I, I was going to say it. I still wasn't involved in any of the business, but there were times he was doing a series on Swamp Thing. The movie was done as a TV series on Showtime, and we had to move to Orlando when Universal opened the studio there. And interestingly, Swamp Thing was being shot in one soundstage, and right next door to it was Psycho 4 that Joe had written. He wasn't interested in doing any sequels on it, but Universal finally came to him after they had done Psycho 2 and 3 and said they were interested in doing another version of it. And Joe said, I would do it only as a prequel because that's a story I've already written as a background to the original Psycho. And so he was able to expand that. And Tony Perkins had to be given permission and being willing to do the role again, which he was because he loved the idea of telling the background story. And Mrs. Bates was played by, oh shoot, uh, it'll come to me, a very pretty young actress who was very seductive and flirtatious with her son and screwed him up royally so that he eventually became the Norman Bates that everyone knew and loved. But... It was fascinating that Joe's two productions were side-by-side at this brand-new studio that had just opened in Orlando, Florida. So we were there at a really fascinating time. And Joe had story editors, two young women, the Berg sisters, Judith and Sandy, who he met with, obviously, very often to discuss episodes of Swamp Thing. And we would often go out to dinner, and that's when I sat in on things and listened mostly, but every once in a while I had a suggestion. I don't know if they ever took any of them, but it was fascinating for me to be involved at that level at that point. So that's the extent of my professional involvement with Joe. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Marilyn Stefano, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. So what happened with Joe after Psycho, the first one? There was a period where he was not that active, I think. And I've thought about it since then. If he had done a picture with that level of success today, or in the last 20 years even, he probably would have gotten contracts from any studio he wanted to, to not only write, but to produce and direct. But they didn't do that then. As a matter of fact, Joe was on a week-to-week salary, and it was kind of shocking. The last show he had done, he was paid $1,500 a week. So when Hitch thought about what to pay Joe, he settled on paying him the same thing. So Joe worked on Psycho for, I think, about eight weeks, but he wound up making $18,000 for the screenplay of Psycho. And Hitch, of course, made millions and money that he was able to bank on for the rest of his career and life. So 
it was a very different world then. The writer was not thought of as someone who could necessarily build a career on one project like you can now. See so many new names now, you wonder how studios are willing to bank and give a, a brand new director a budget of $50 million to $100 million or more on the hope that they'll come up with something really successful. So I'm trying to remember what we did right after Psycho was build a swimming pool at our house. We didn't have all that much money, but it didn't cost that much then. And Joe was going out on interviews and things, but he was very selective. He could not work on something he didn't believe in. So he turned down a lot more things than he accepted. And, you know, you hear about all the things in a trunk. He had a very full trunk, a lot of things that were in the works and then dropped for one reason or another, very often having nothing to do with the quality of the script. He, unfortunately, was one of those people who people would say, the script is too good. It's kind of a left-handed compliment. But he had been working on a script for years called Two Bits, and it was the script that his agent sent out when producers wanted to see a sample of his really good writing. And it was the kind of script that people said, oh, this is so beautiful, it's too good for TV, it's too good for film, it should be an art film, and it's a little film, and silly phrases like that. So it took a long time for anyone to finally feel that they could make a commercial success of it. Actually, it took almost 30 years, but that was always his dream project. He hoped that eventually he could get at least an Oscar nomination based on that script. And then eventually it was done, and it was a big disappointment. We had a bad director and a Swiss producer, Arthur Cohn, who was famous for the five or six Oscars that he got, all based on foreign films. And he was eager to do his first American production, and Two Bits was going to be that. And it was a script that was to take place in Philadelphia, where Joe grew up. And... It revolved around a young 12-year-old boy who's living in the depths of the Depression, 1933. And he lives with his mother. His father is dead. and lives with his grandfather. And eventually, they were able to get Al Pacino to play the grandfather, who seemed like an ideal dream actor to play the role. But it had to be shot in Philadelphia in summer, and it was hard to find a director who could make a commitment at the beginning of the year and be ready to start production in summertime and have it all work out. And it took three or four years before Kong was able to get the production going. At that point, we got this youngish, insecure director named Jamie Foley who had done a couple of good things, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and a movie called Reckless that we liked. 
but when you think of the cast and Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and Jack Lemmon, and Alec Baldwin, and Al Pacino, and people who knew their way around a script and really barely needed a director to tell them what to do, you can't give them an awful lot of credit for that success. And he decided after he started directing that he didn't want to work with the writer anymore, even though Joe, as writer, chose to also be executive producer, was given that credit, and was on the set every day studying and advising when he could. He had a director who wouldn't talk to him, who wouldn't even say hello to him when he came on the set, and ignored him when we went to watch dailies at the end of the day. So it turned out to be a big disappointment. Costuming was strange. It was in the depth of the Depression, and yet they had crowd scenes of women walking along with pretty gloves and pretty hats on, and dozens of cars driving back and forth on the streets. When Joe said the true situation during the Depression was that one person might have a car who lived two blocks away, and if you had an accident or something and needed to be driven to the hospital, they sent somebody to his house to bring him back to take you to the hospital. So it was a totally unrealistic view of what the depression was, pretty pictures, rather than the real sadness and tragedy of what people went through during the depression. So it took a while to get the production going, and then it finally did get going, and it was picked up by Miramax Pictures to distribute it, and Harvey Weinstein, who is now a very famous name, was involved. And he happened to be known as Harvey Scissorhands. He loved cutting and changing the direction of the picture. And he decided there should be a voiceover, which is something Joe hated. But they started writing the narrative. And Joe said, well, we're going to have to have voiceover. I'll write it. And they brought in Alec Baldwin to tell the backstory while you were watching the action, which kind of spoiled the whole tone of the picture. So it came, and unfortunately it went. It was a very sad period for Joe because his dreams had been that this was his pet project and it would really establish him in the business and didn't work out that way. And what year was that? Do you remember? Yes, 1993 is when it was shot. What year was Psycho? 1960. So the long period between. And Joe wrote a lot of movies for TV. It was good cast, and it was the direction that a lot of people were going. And he went through a long period of depression. He had a like five-year depression where he was really a clinical depression where he was seeing a therapist every day, which helped eventually to get him through. But, you know, you begin as a sensitive person with a, a thin skin, and in the business you have to tough it up, but you still have to maintain that sensitivity, and it's a very hard path to walk. He was a sensitive person in an industry where people were thrown away. Yes, especially as a writer. And he was dedicated to his art, and he Absolutely. he had very high standards. Yes. 
And he had an interesting technique. He would start thinking about a project if it was an original one thing, but if he was assigned to do something, he would get the material and he would read it, and then he would put it aside. And we had a kind of small house in Beverly Hills Mountains, and we had a lovely view downtown at first. When we first moved in, we could see a good part of the middle part of Hollywood, and we were there during a period when the Los Angeles County Museum of Art was built on Wilshire Boulevard around Fairfax, and from our window, we could see the building, and when they finished it and they opened it, opening night, we could see fireworks coming from there, from Joe's office window. But through the years, we lived there 46 years, trees began growing up and houses began being built, and we slowly lost some of that view so that we still had a great mountain view, but we didn't have the city view anymore. And, oh, my God, what was my point? (laughs) Um, There were a lot of projects he was offered that he said it was going to be someone he didn't want to work with, he had no compunction about just saying, you know, I'm going to pass on this. He he was kind enough to people, but he also, uh, th- there was a period when they were talking to different directors for two bits, and among the people interested was Steven Spielberg and Ron Howard. And they had a phone conference set up, and he didn't meet, Howard, but they got them on the phone and they were talking about it, and Ron said to him, I understand that you tolerate no fools, whatever the phrase is. And it was interesting that, you know, they hadn't met, and yet Ron Howard, who's this major director and has been in the business all his life, knew that about him. He was not somebody you could fool. He had a, a great sense of humor, but he also could see through the bullshit. And he really had integrity, and I always admired that. But he cries for it. But he chose not to work with Ron Howard or Steven Spielberg. No, no, Howard was afraid. Interesting. He said, what would his Italian director friends, like Francis Ford Coppola or Scorsese, say about Ron Howard, all-American Ron Howard, doing a movie about an Italian boy. And he was afraid that they would put him down or laugh at him. So he passed. Which is interesting thinking. You know, that's a very special world of those guys who get together occasionally and work and probably talk to each other and critique each other's work. It's not a world we're privy to, but it must be interesting if they ever get together for screening or a discussion about the production to see how they deal with each other. So they might be very confident in public in many circles, but amongst their peers, their elite peers, they were probably very insecure. Exactly. And you can understand, you know, I don't think Ron Howard has ever done any kind of ethnic program. He tends to do very American subjects. So I could see where that could be consideration. What did he know about the Italian family? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can learn something, but 
you don't necessarily have the right feel for it. At least that was his concern. Mm-hmm. So what happened with Steven Spielberg? Uh, he, <laughs> that's a funny story. We were very excited when Arthur got a call from Spielberg talking about his interest in directing two bits. And we think, oh, my God, that would really make the picture. It would open it. It would be a whole different world that we'd be involved in. It turned out that his first wife, the actress, I can't remember her name, before Kate Capshaw, was married to a Brazilian director. His name was Bruno something who had done a very interesting, successful film called Dona Flor and Her Husbands. Oh, yes, I know that film. And somehow he had gotten a copy of Two Bits and loved it and wanted to direct it. So he prevailed upon his wife, who then prevailed upon her ex-husband to put in a call for him. (laughs) So Spielberg was calling to ask if they would talk to Bruno and give him a chance at directing the script. But Arthur wanted an all-American production. All of his films had been done. You know, he did Finzi Contini. Another uh, great movie. Yes, and Black and White in Color and Earth Above, Sky Below. And he did not want any foreign people involved in it except for him. So... He turned Bruno down. So that was Spielberg's interest. That was a shame. Yeah. I'm not sure that Spielberg would have been right for it either. He's certainly also not Italian. Right. You never know. Well, neither was Jamie Foley, and that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. So in that interim period between Psycho and Two Bits, Joe was writing mostly television movies? Yes, uh-huh. He did something called Eye of the Cat. And these titles sound kind of exaggerated. They're not titles Joe would have come up with. Joe had named it for his main character, Wiley. And it's about a widow, Eleanor Parker, who lives in a grand mansion in San Francisco. And it's a house filled with cats. She loves cats. and They're her companions. And she has a nephew who she hasn't seen in years, and he comes back to visit her because he's down on his luck and he needs a place to sleep and starts to woo her without realizing that the house is filled with cats. And suddenly he discovers that, and he has allurophobia, which is fear of cats. And the cats gather around to protect their keeper, their aunt, because they sense that he's not there for her good. And it was a universal picture, and one of the executives changed it to Eye of the Cat, which is kind of corny, but it was supposed to start shooting in September in San Francisco, and the director decided his first scenes would be shooting a cat and training the cat to do certain things that it didn't want to do. <laughs> and uh, he spent two days trying to make a cat do something that it was not about to do and finally got so nervous and sick that he quit the production. <laughs> and they had to quickly hire another director 
and they asked Joe if he would please go up to San Francisco and work with the director on the script to make up for lost time and to help the director get his bearings. So that was an interesting project for Joe. He wound up spending a couple of months up in San Francisco, and I visited occasionally, trying to make cats do things that are very hard to make any cat do that has a mind of its own, which we know cats do. Yes, they certainly do. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Marilyn Stefano, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. I would actually love to go back to Psycho, because there seems to be a dark thread in a lot of Joe's work. Yeah. Where did that come from? I have to go back to his childhood. He had a kind of Tennessee Williams childhood. His mother married very young age. I think she was under 17. And she had three boys. And then her husband died when she was about 20. She was left with three young boys. And I'm not sure how she lived. And then she met Joe's father, who also had been married and had three children, two girls and a boy. And then his wife had died. So these two widowers met and fell in love and decided to marry and move the children in together. And then they had two more children, Joe's brother, Peter, and Joe was the youngest of these five. And even though neither family was related to the other, one of the girls in the father's family fell in love with one of the boys in Joe's family, and he did not reciprocate. They were living in the same house, but there was a strange tension going on that Joe, as the baby of the family, evidently was aware of through the years. And his older brothers were quite a bit older. They were in college when he was in grammar school. And at the time, I don't know if they still have it in Philadelphia, but there was a very wealthy man named Gerard, I don't know his first name, who donated a large sum of money to a school to take care of fatherless boys. And they would take the young boys, starting possibly in kindergarten, and move them into this home where their education was taken care of through college. So Joe's three older brothers all went to the Gerard School, and they would come home occasionally. So Joe knew them somewhat, but could be very close to them. And they, being older, when they graduated from college, had more control over the household than Joe's father, who was a tailor during the Depression and apparently didn't always work. So the boys would take over, and I guess they were protecting their mother, and they would kind of kick him out of the house. So he was in and out of the house through the years, and they would move every year from one house to another because they would come to a point where they couldn't afford the rent and they'd have to move to a different place. And Joe's oldest brother, who was called Doc, came down with tuberculosis. So the whole family had to be tested, and Doc eventually died in the house. 
but he was Joe's protector and friend, and Joe was interested in listening to music and radio, and Doc would be lying in bed all day with nothing to do, so he would listen to radio programs and make notes for Joe and give him help in his ambition to at least listen to the music and eventually make use of it as a professional writer. So he had all this strange dynamic going on, and eventually when the father was kicked out, he took his children with him too. So he had family members coming in and out all the time, and Joe being the youngest and the one his mother counted on because he was the closest to her, went into a world of fantasy, and they lived in these little row houses in South Philadelphia that were all joined together. They all had little stoops, and people would sit out on the stoops during the night and talk to each other, and it was an interesting community, and it was mostly Italian, but there were also a lot of Jewish neighbors, and there were Irish neighborhoods, too, so you, you'd walk from one to another, sometimes having a little problem. There weren't gangs, but there were people who uh, did not necessarily like whatever your ethnicity was, and you had to deal with that. And Joe had one older boy who tormented him and who occasionally would light a match and throw it at him and it burned his leg at one point, burned his sock. And when he came home that night and the family saw it, they questioned him, and they found out who had done that to him. And the older brothers went to that young guy's house and talked to his parents. And Joe used to try to take other streets to avoid running into the bully. And after the brothers talked to the family, he never saw him again. So he didn't know what happened to him, but they did take care of him in that instance. But it was a very disturbing family, and I'm sure that's what helped color what he went through. What was his perspective on humanity? He could be pretty cynical, and he had a somewhat negative view, colored, I think, by his background. He certainly didn't have a happy childhood. The only good thing about his childhood was that when they moved from one house to another, all the houses had basements, and he would take over the basement and build a stage and curtains and write shows and invite the neighbors in to see it. And that was his fantasy world. He was starting probably at the age of seven or eight to build another world, a pleasanter world. I'm not sure if he wrote songs at that point. It was pretty young. But he eventually got involved with Philadelphia's Little Theater and began to write songs because he didn't like the songs that somebody else was writing for their shows. And he took over, and he was a performer. He sang and danced. And it really gave him a foundation for his career later on. Where did he get his confidence to believe in. I don't know. That that always struck me. I always felt self-conscious about it and anything I did. He didn't fear anyone. He was not impressed by anyone. He had such incredible confidence based on just feeling that he was really talented and he was right. <laughs> it really was remarkable. He never worried about 
he wasn't nervous when he had a meeting with anyone. He was able to think clearly. He could answer any questions. He did great pitches and almost always got the job because he was charming and people found him interesting and fascinating and funny and witty. And I was very lucky when I met him. And we had some ups and downs. And I realized that even though he was very neurotic, he was worth hanging on to and fighting for. And so we had some hard times, but stuck it out. And both of us coming from broken homes, I think felt very strongly that we wanted to keep our home together. And especially for Dominic, but just for ourselves too. We didn't want divorces in our world. When you are looking at someone as a potential partner, I think you really have to weigh those things. Who is this person going to be later on? I was not one to say, in five years, I'm going to be at this point, and in 10 years, I'm going to be at that point. I just went with the flow. But the one thing I knew was that my problems were not really with Joe. I brought problems into the situation, and he did too, and we could work them out. As we did, we had 53 years together. That's a rare thing these days. <laughs> yes, exactly, especially in this world. Yes. What was your life like throughout this up-and-down Hollywood life, Hollywood world? Uh, it was interesting for me because I was kind of involved and yet removed. There were times when I sort of felt like I lived in a vacuum. In our first few years together, I worked. Joe was always at home, working at home, writing, doing acts for people, and I was always going out to a job somewhere. I worked as an assistant, and I worked in a music publishing company. I worked in a travel agency writing itineraries for people. I worked for a couple who traveled all the time selling, and I managed their one-person office, me, in their apartment. So I had kind of non-professional careers. I had started as an artist and met my boss at one place, a beauty supply place, and my boss was the advertising executive, and she wanted to mentor me, and she wanted to get me into advertising, and uh, she recommended that I take some courses, and I, I took typing and scenography and worked with her until she got fired and the boss that fired me because I was her ally, and she tried helping me get into the advertising, and I worked for the American Newspaper Publishing Association for a while. But I really didn't have any kind of professional ambition. I wasn't that interested in doing artwork, although I started that way. And so I was in a good position to just kind of follow Joe and have jobs that would bring in some money without taking up too much of my time. I had a friend who was a costume designer, and he wanted to mentor me and bring me into a movie. And he had me monitor a movie that he was working on. 
And I realized in order to really do a job like that, I'd have to be prepared to be up at 6 in the morning and on the set by 7 or 8 and spend the whole day there and possibly till midnight. And I really wouldn't have any private professional life. And I just did not have that kind of ambition. And certainly it was not what Joe would have wanted. But he didn't mind my working, and I worked as an interior designer later on. But he wanted me home and making dinner for him, even though he was home all day long. But he was busy doing more important work. So I think that was kind of the attitude. There was nothing that important that I needed to do except to take care of him and down it. So I just kind of went with the flow. I was available to help, and I enjoyed helping and uh, didn't need to have any other outlet for myself. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Marilyn Stefano, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour, WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. When and how did Outer Limits happen? Oh, that's interesting. Joe had done a couple of... uh, Robert Taylor, the uh, movie star, had a TV series called Robert Taylor Detectives, and Joe had done a couple of... I think they were half-hour shows, a couple of episodes for them, and another show like that. And he and Leslie Stevens, who was the original creator, had been friends in New York. Leslie... A very interesting man. He was tall and very blonde and very waspy. And his father was an admiral in the Navy. And so Leslie grew up around the world. He went to school all around the world. And the father eventually was ambassador to Moscow. So he lived there. And he traveled so much he began thinking of himself as a writer, because he could do that anywhere. And I'm not quite sure how he and Joe met, but they were friends before I met Joe, casual friends up to a point. And then they started doing acts for some people who they knew, usually female singers. And Leslie would write a story that would encompass the performer's desires And Joe would write the songs and rehearse the performer. And so they had that kind of relationship. Leslie became a playwright, had a couple of hit plays on Broadway or off-Broadway, actually. And he was always fascinating because he was interested in, among other things, science fiction, which Joe was not. But they enjoyed each other's company. They were both bright and witty and good-looking and had great social skills. And then when we moved out here, Leslie was already here. He had just recently moved. And, well, I'll backtrack a little. During the war, Joe had always wanted to be on Broadway. He didn't think about writing until after he had his chance at trying to be a chorus boy on Broadway. And Leslie had these two big productions that, he was getting known for and was considered an up-and-coming rising star. 
And when Joe was waiting to be called into the army during the war, he had been doing some dancing and singing with Philadelphia Little Theater, and he decided to audition for the Schubert Company, and he was hired to travel around the country during the war in productions of The Student Prince one year and The Merry Widow the other year, which are both operettas that require a lot of singing and dancing. And it was kind of fun thing for him to do. And he became very friendly with a very pretty young woman who he introduced to Leslie, and they eventually married. So that was another link between them. Joe had put them together. And then when we moved here with Joe's seven-year contract at Fox, Leslie had already come out here and was starting work. And Leslie used to have wonderful parties at his house up in the hills. And we also entertained them. And he was married to another beautiful actress, blonde, named Kate Manx, who someone is writing a book about. And one night he called Joe about 10.30. He said, can I come over? and talk to you about something. And Joe said, it's kind of late. Leslie said, it's okay, it's important. I've got to talk about it now. So Leslie came over with his co-producer, a musician named Dominic Frenchieri, who just died a couple of weeks ago. And Dominic had been a prodigy on the accordion when he was six years old and played Carnegie Hall and had a very strange, interesting career. Eventually married the owner of the L.A. Rams, Georgia Rosenblum. So it was odd to see him working as a studio executive, in effect. Leslie had started a studio out here called Daystar Productions. And they came over and they said, we have been dealing with ABC. And at that time, Leslie had a show on the air called Stony Burke about a cowboy starring Jack Lord. And he said, we have a pickup of Stony Burke, but we also have this science fiction series called, at that point, it's called Please Stand By. And they want me to do two shows. They need me to bring somebody in. And I mentioned your name, and they said we would be very open to that. So they were asking Joe if he was willing to join them and work on that with them. And... You know, Joe said, sounds interesting. I've never produced anything, but they said, you don't have to worry. You don't have to learn anything. We'll have good people helping you and teaching you, and, you know, you do as much as you want. You don't have to write a lot. You don't have to write more than two or three of the episodes. And Joe agreed, and ABC was very happy, and they were just about to choose their pilot. And Joe read the script and said, Leslie... Leslie had written, you have to rewrite this. And Leslie was upset because he didn't believe in rewriting. He wrote on big yellow pads with pencil, and he would just write once and not reread it. And Joe's technique was to polish, to just keep going till it was the best you could be. So Joe had to really heavily influence Leslie to do what he needed to do. And they filmed a pilot with Cliff Robertson, and it went to series. And that's when Joe began learning how to produce and taking over and loving the creativity that he could exhibit and having 
not really to answer to anyone, to let his imagination run free. And he wound up writing over 12 of the episodes and rewriting almost everything because they'd get a script from writer on a Friday and they had to start shooting on Monday and it wouldn't be up to par and Joe would just take it home and spend the weekend rewriting it and getting it in shape so that they could shoot. And they shot the equivalent of a movie a week for $125,000. Really remarkable. Now, you know, most power shows cost over a million. So it's just incredible what they accomplished in that first year. When did that start? When did Outer Limits begin? 1963. Wow. And those are the shows that people still write about. We get letters, uh, requests occasionally, and calls from people. And there's a very strong fan base of people who whose lives are really centered around the Outer Limits. It's influenced them. As a matter of fact, when Joe was asked by the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror, so sometime in the 70s, to present an award to James Cameron after he had done Terminator 1 and was finishing Terminator 2, and they wanted to present him with an award, and they wanted Joe to present it to him. And so Joe agreed, and we were invited to the dinner, and we sat at the table with Jim Cameron and his mother. And she told us that when he was seven or eight, when it came time for the Outer Limits to come on, she would call him, and he'd come sit with her, and they'd watch the show every week. And it really affected him and influenced him. And... So Joe presented him with the award and started leaving the stage, and Jim grabbed him by the shoulder and pulled him back in and said, it's because of this man that I have the career I have. He completely influenced me in my life's work. And that was something really nice. I remember watching The Outer Limits every week when I was a child. Really? Yes. And wow. So how long was The Outer Limits running for? Actually, these days I think you're lucky if you can get a pickup of 13 episodes. For some reason, maybe because it was less expensive then, they got a pickup of, I think, 33, which was unheard of. And so Joe had story editors who were interviewing writers, and he was meeting with writers, and he had a studio office at the studio called KTTV at the time, right by the freeway on Sunset. And he had two offices, one for him and one for his assistant. And when he needed to, he would kick the assistant out of his office and close the door and sit there rewriting. And he would go to work early in the morning, and when production ended for the day, he would then watch dailies and then work with a film editor. So he was coming home sometimes at 1 or 2 in the morning, and one morning he was driving home and started falling asleep, and he didn't realize it until he was aware of, I guess, a horn waking him up, and he looked in the rearview mirror, and there was a policeman following him and pulled him over and probably assumed that he was drunk 
until Joe explained that he had just come from editing and he was almost home but was really falling asleep. And the cop realized and said, I'll follow you. You know, you get back in the car and I'll follow you if you get home. And he probably saved Joe's life. But he was putting in that kind of time and he really was dedicated, but he knew at the end of the season that ABC wanted to move it from, I think it was on Monday night, to Saturday night opposite the Jackie Gleason show, which was the big hit then. And Joe felt that it was a bad time slot and that it would take such effort on his part to make it continue the quality that he was keeping. And he didn't think it was going to be successful opposite Jackie Gleason. So he quit, and they had to get new producers. They gave it another six months, but it, it just wasn't the same show, and it, it lost the audience. And they brought in people who were more science fiction, which Joe was, and Joe really loved gothic horror. So that's you know, partly from his background and the horror that he lived in as a child. But it was the seminal production of his life, that, of course, in Psycho. Not too many people who are known for two amazing projects like that. So they were playing reruns of it for many years after that. Oh, yes. And one of the things about it that was kind of touching was he got a lot of letters from kids who wrote saying, we love the show and we love the monsters. And sometimes the monsters are good. They're not bad. They're really good. And that makes me feel better because sometimes I'm called a monster. And <laughs> I, I don't want to be evil. Not really a bad monster. So he was creating multidimensional characters. Yeah. And it always ended with something to think about. Yeah, I remember really loving that show. I think it, it had a profound effect on me. I think it, it helped open my mind to a very magical realm of possibility. Oh, really? That's wonderful. At a very young age. It's nice to hear. And I had no idea that it only ran for one year. It ran for a year and a half, but the second, I guess, quarter was produced by a man named Ben Brady, who was a kind of hack producer. And some of the episodes that are well-known are by science fiction writer named Harlan Ellison, who is such a crazy small world. I don't know how Joe and he first met, but they had a natural antipathy to each other, and Joe wouldn't have anything to do with him and refused to do any of his work in his year. And so when Ben Brady took over, they brought in Harlan, and Harlan did Demon with a Glass Hand, and we didn't like the direction it took. And we didn't like Star Trek, which Gene Roddenberry wanted Joe to work with him on. And then Dominic met a young woman named Lori, and they fell in love, and he brought her to us, introduced us, and they eventually married. And her name was Lori Ellison. And when we got to know her, we found out that she was married to Harlan and was divorced from him. He had been a professor class that she took, and apparently he'd made a play for her, and 
she succumbed and married him and then was very sorry that she had. So it was a really crazy small world that, of all people, <laughs> hard to be married to at the time. It should be somebody who Joe hated. I'm curious, what did Joe not like about Star Trek or Gene Roddenberry? Oh, he liked Gene Roddenberry. You know, I collect coincidences, and they're so delicious. There's so many interesting things. When Joe first came out here before we moved for him to get started on the Black Orchid, it was to be shot in Paramount, and he didn't really know anybody out here. And he met the cast of the movie, and one of them was a young actress named Major Barrett. You know that name? Yes. He eventually married Jean Roddenberry. Mm -hmm. So she was a very wealthy woman. And they became friends, and he was out here for a week without me. And so she kind of took him around, introduced him to Los Angeles, drove him places. They went to dinner together. She became a nice friend, and being in the movie was just one of those happy coincidences. And so when I came out here and we began socializing, we met her, and I know she wasn't married to Jean at the time of the movie, but she did later on. So we then became somewhat friends. I didn't spend much time with Jean, but Joe and Maisel did. And eventually, Jean said to Joe, I plan to retire. I'm not going to do this all my life. And I would like you to work with me and take over the show for me. And Joe was a little leery about that. And he said, I'll have to think about that, but maybe if I write an episode for you, I'll get a feeling for what the company is like. And the Star Trek company took a lot of the people from the Outer Limits. Robert Justman, who was the associate producer, and really Joe's helper, Joe's teacher, and a lot of things, a lovely man, and the costume designers and the makeup people and the casting people and some of the directors. And some of the stories, too, were very similar to stories that had been done by The Outer Limits. And so they assigned Joe something called Skin of Evil, and they wanted to kill off the female doctor who wanted to leave the show. I think her character name was Tasha Yar, and they decided Joe should kill her off. So <laughs> who better than the guy who wrote Psycho? So Joe wrote the script, and they rewrote it. And he got to feel and see the kind of politicking that was going on in the company, and he did not want to have anything to do with that. So he wrote the script that they rewrote and changed, which he was not very tolerant of. He always felt that if the script needed rewriting, he should do it. And they didn't give him that chance. They gave it the Star Trek touch. Through the years, occasionally, when I've talked about some things, people have said that could make a, a good book or a thing to think about. And I've never pursued it because I don't know how anybody writes a script or even a book. Whose point of view do you use? If you're writing different characters, they each have to have their own voice. And how do you learn to do that? And it's not something I feel terribly interested in doing. But, you know, there are stories to be told, and people often seem to enjoy them. And when I get into it, I enjoy it, too. And I think it would work 
probably best for you to tell the stories from your perspective and not try and take on anybody else's roles. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only way you can tell a story well. It could be done as you telling the stories from your perspective. Actually, uh, a few years ago, a friend asked me if I liked writing, and I said, yeah, I do. And she said a mutual friend was a writer who was conducting a writing class, and she was starting a new class, and would I be interested in joining? And I thought about it and I said, yeah, I probably would. And unfortunately, it was in Beverly Hills, and we went in every Monday and began getting tiring after a year and a half of driving home into the sun from Beverly Hills to Agora Hills with the sun blinding me each way. And then there were times when I would be driving and start yawning. And one day I was really fighting falling asleep and doing whatever I could to make sure I stayed awake. And I finally got to the turn off and relaxed because I had made it and fell asleep coming off the freeway and hit two cars that were waiting for the light to change. And at that point, I thought, I will never get in the car when I'm yawning again. And I continued in the class for a little while longer, but what we were doing was writing about anything we wanted to write. And so I had a year and a half of doing that kind of writing and beginning to think that I was running out of stories. And then when I stopped, the class finally, I realized that there were whole things that I hadn't even thought about writing about. So I guess there are still a lot of stories, and I've written some of them. So it was it was fun for a while. Well, I'd be, uh, I'd be really curious to hear what other things that you would like to write about. Okay. Let's see what comes out of all of this. Thank you. It's very interesting, and it's nice to be in touch with you. Oh, it's wonderful to be in touch with you, and... Thank you so much for sharing all of this. I've oh, enjoyed this pleasure. so much. Thank you for being interested. Oh, yeah, and we'll, we'll definitely continue this. All right, good. <laughs> Take care. You too. We'll talk soon. We will. Okay. Okay. Love you. I love you too. Bye. Bye-bye. And that was my Aunt Marilyn Stefano. She was married to the legendary Hollywood screenwriter and producer Joseph Stefano, most well-known for writing the screenplay to Psycho. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, have a wonderful week. This show is brought to you by Goddard College Community Radio. For more information, check out wgdr.org.